The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I am your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Deborah Pardis and Dr. Karen Post, co-authors of Climbing Out From Under, a handbook for heartbreak. Deborah Pardis studied creative writing at the John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University and received her BA from Barnard College at Columbia University. She's the founding director of Artists for Literacy, an organization that uses the power of art to make books accessible to low-level readers. Deborah is also the founding producer for Lit Remix, a new online learning platform that encourages the exploration and creation of art inspired by literature. Additionally, Deborah is a critically acclaimed producer and songwriter with eight CDs to her name. Karen Post received her doctorate in clinical psychology from New York University. She's a clinical psychologist who works with adolescents and adults who are struggling with depression, anxiety, trauma, and loss, as well as parent-child relationships and perinatal mental health. She's the founding executive director of Maternal Mental Health Now and maintains a private practice and lectures in Los Angeles, California, where one of my kids lives. Welcome, Deborah and Karen. (laughs) Thank you. Good to be here. Oh, I'm I'm glad to have you. And and first, I just wanted to start by saying that what I most appreciated about your book is that it took a lot of pretty meaty ideas and tools and and very concisely offered them to readers because I find that often, and this was true for me for sure, in in deep heartbreak or grief, it's really hard to read something long or complicated. So I appreciate mm-hmm. how you kind mm-hmm. of broke down those ideas. Thank was you. that intentional? Well, that you know that um, you know being a psychologist and. Um, uh, and having the academic training, I'm I very long-winded, and um, uh, so working with Deborah was uh, just an amazing process because really it was her being able to distill all those, as you said, kind of heavy, meaty ideas, you know, into something uh, concise and very usable. Um, digestible, uh, you know, bite-sized pieces that I think w- was really good. That that was a fun partnership or necessary to give birth to something that was usable. Karen, how did you come to work together on the book originally? Um, so um, Deborah and I met. Um, Deborah, do you want to tell the story? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm actually loving you telling the story. <laughs> okay. Well, so we met at a uh, show and tell. Deborah uh, does these uh, adult show and tells in Los Angeles where people come with artifacts and uh, of their lives and tell a story about the object and, and share about themselves. And it's a very fun evening. And so we met then, and we developed a friendship uh, here in Venice. And we'd just sit around, we'd sit around and talk about our life experiences and inevitably that always, you know, often led to talking about times of heartbreak or current heartbreaks and past heartbreaks and um, sharing our deeper emotions. And um, I had gone through a uh, separation and um, from my husband and that was... Um, a very, and that was some years before, that was a very painful uh, time for me, and there was so much grief associated with that for me. So I had shared that with her, and I had always wanted to, um, to write a book uh, that would incorporate a lot of the ideas that I work with and am exposed to from current uh, psychoanalysis, uh, interpersonal neuropsychology, and, um, you know, all my years being a therapist, all the readings, the Buddhist psychology, and many other influences. But, again, as I said, I'm very long-winded, and, uh, so, and, and not the um, most captivating of, of, of writers. And so I asked her if she would want to write that with me, and, and she said yes. So that's, uh, that's how it came to be, from my point of mm. view, anyway. Mm. Deborah, I, I read somewhere in my um, readings about the two of you that when you started on the book, um, you weren't in a current you 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 were kind of being the the writing uh, portion, and then I I believe you you um, lost your father while you were writing the book. Is that yeah? Did I was, read that correctly? It was a very interesting experience because, uh, as Karen said, if you look at her library, you see the influences that sculpt her, her practice. And there are so many amazing thought leaders out there that have such dense, amazing you know, works of, 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 of uh, literature that help you access their, their point of views. But it, together, when you're in the middle of a, a trauma and, and, a, and a period of, of mourning, it's hard to pick up those heavy books. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be in dialogue with her during that time and started really appreciating the possibility of creating a book that would be helpful for the same reasons I needed help, which were to, 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 to give me something that was accessible during a time when I wasn't functioning very high. Um, so it was a great time to take notes and to really collect things. And, and as, my, uh, as I worked w- with my grief, I was able to to work with the the language of this book. So it really went hand in hand. Uh, You know, I I was wondering if it was when that loss confronted you or you confronted that loss, uh, I wondered if it was hard to continue writing because I know for myself when I am in the midst of loss, sometimes it's hard to produce, you know. Uh, You know, the way we wrote uh, was very interesting in the sense that we didn't attempt to write any prose or poetry during the time we collected information from each other. So sitting with Carrot, I, I just uh, was able to absorb lots and lots of information where I wasn't required to be 
uh, a writerly person. I was more, I was more just collecting it. Um, so by the time I got to writing it, um, I was in a better space. I think you're right. You know, Paul Simon says that he only writes from grief and pain, but there's a lot of artists who can't write from grief and pain because they're too frozen. Um, and I have to say that the parts, parts of this book were written uh, wanting people to, to know that there's, there's a lot of expression that's available to us during these times and a ways to access that have to be um, you know, uh, taken advantage of because it's, it's, you know, journaling and writing is, is, is so important, but judging what you write is, is, is not good. So you have to kind of be careful. <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think you're alluding to something that um, is, is true in my experience that creative expression is sometimes really opened up by grief. But I was mm-hmm. sort of talking more about um, descriptive linear writing that is not yeah. always um, mm-hmm. invited by by um, mm-hmm. those those trauma moments. So um, mm-hmm. it, it it fills it out for me that you kind of did the creative part, the sharing ideas and the uh, kind of feeling it through, and then as you kind of came came back from that deep grief place or through, uh, you were able to to kind of describe it. Mm-hmm. Do more mm-hmm. descriptive mm-hmm. writing, so that's that makes sense to me. Um, yeah. Karen, I I, I appreciated the simple explanations. Speaking of that, about how the brain works, uh, you know, so many people. I've never been very scientifically inclined as a person, except that I find myself um, describing neuroplasticity and how the brain changes to clients all the time. Because mm-hmm. they they don't really understand that they can actually be making headway with something, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but not not see any outward change. And I mm-hmm. uh, so I I appreciated the simple way you explained that. And I wondered if you might be uh, able to read the the part of the book that's about being built for change. Absolutely, um, and and I will read that. Can I say a couple, of, just a couple of things? Absolutely, of course. So I I think you're hitting on something so important, and that is, uh, you know, as practitioners and and people who are not practitioners, people we we know that people can change, and but but people can despair that you know, am I changing? And when when you know all of the exciting developments in um, interpersonal neurology, um, when people you know can grasp that, it it it's a concrete thing uh, where because now we know that the brain actually can change its architecture, and that gives mm-hmm. people it's kind of oh it, it can literally change and and it does yes. so yeah yeah I will I will uh, read this so. Uh, from our You Are Built for Change section. And it says, We're super complicated organisms with brains that contain millions of interconnected neurons that are part of the most complex networking system in the universe. That's exhausting, just as a sentence. But complex doesn't mean stuck. Sure, many of our neuronal patterns were laid down long ago during childhood, especially those connected to the way we relate to others and the world around us. As you read this, it may feel like your life is written in stone, but that simply is, simply is not true. Neuroplasticity throughout your lifespan is a scientific fact. The possibility of change is a scientific fact. 
This means that we all have brains with the capacity to create new neuronal webs and connections as a result of having new experiences, including new thoughts and feelings. Brilliant, right? So you don't have to believe a self-help book that tells you change is possible. You're built for the possibility of change to occur. It's true that you and all of us need human connection and healing relationships, but in order to heal from heartbreak, doing work within yourself is deeply important. You'll inevitably discover an inner knowledge that will cultivate confidence and a sense that you are fully resourced and you can survive even, and even thrive as a result of heartbreak. And I guess the, uh, the um, post-traumatic growth people would say as a result of struggling with heartbreak, you know, their, their idea being you don't necessarily grow, but you certainly mm-hmm. can. <laughs> right, yes, um, absolutely. So, well, that's, yes, absolutely. And I think that's what we're trying to get across in a usable way is how, right, you don't necessarily grow. You can, you can constrict, you can become rigid, you can freeze um, and shrivel. But uh, alternatively, if you can learn to work with the intensity of the emotions and uh, bear them using different tools and, you know, turn the pain to good account in a way is another way of thinking of it, then, then you can grow. We, yeah, I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think we're heading uh, very smoothly into your uh, acronym GLITTER, um, <laughs> which uh, to me was such a, such a clear way of, of kind of identifying the different, um, the different skills you need to begin to sit with emotion and, and um, uh, love yourself through it, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Can you talk some about that? We'll, we'll get started with this, and we'll probably have more to say after the break. But can, uh, can you just uh, introduce the concept? Sure. You know, um, it was, first of all, it was, it was so, I, it's such a funny thing to say, but it was, it was very fun to write this book because we knew our challenge was to really make things accessible. And, and part of that challenge required that we, you know, get playful with the ideas that are, that are so um, uh, current in, in people's minds already around mindfulness. But, ha- you know, mindfulness is, is a, is a word that we, we uh, those of us in, in this conversation know about, but the larger, community probably doesn't, uh, but we didn't want to make it seem too yogic or something that's too out there on a rock on a mountain. So we wanted it right. to have energy and, and accessibility. So the first thing uh, Karen had said was, let's get an acronym together that people can remember um, to empower people so that wherever they are, they could think of those letters and, 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 and uh, you know, put themselves in a, in a good place and do some work, whether they're in the, I'll, I always say to people, you're in Costco and you're shopping and all of a sudden a song comes over the loudspeaker and it's the favorite song you had and an experience that now is over and, and you just want to crumple to the ground. So you're on the ground and you can do glitter on the ground and you can get there <laughs> fast. And that was sort of the thinking behind this. Let's tell people uh, what those letters stand for. Um, ground, locate, inquire, turn towards and recognize. Um, yes. Would you see that as kind of do one than the other, or is it more like which one works at the moment? Um, how does how does that? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think of that? 
Good question. I think in some, you know, kind of both are true. In some respects, um, uh, depending upon the moment, it um, one, you know, some are foundational and the others kind of build upon that. So it's hard to kind of uh, recognize, in a sense, sometimes, you know, um, especially if you're starting off, it's hard to recognize if you haven't done the work of inquiring within and grounding. So, um, you know, I don't think it, it has to necessarily always be a sequential thing, but, but there is a, a value in, in that, uh, in it being sequential. And so, you know, to ground yourself, you know, so it's, when you're flooded with, these, with emotions, and emotions are intense, and um, when you're flooded, or for that matter, feeling very disconnected, too. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, starting off by grounding is, is important. Um, and if you're, I, I think it really is foundational. So, to ground yourself, one of the you know exercises we talk about is using your five senses to get in touch, and um, and so that's grounding. So again, if you're flooded with very intense emotion, it's going to be very hard just to uh, center yourself. And the whole idea of glitter and and this this acronym is a kind of to, it, it itself to be a foundational experience from which you can bear your emotions. So because when you can bear them, you can then use their energy uh, for, you know, the energy will be used in a transformative way because you don't, you're not then defensively, you know, disassociating from it or disconnecting. So it's a, a way to connect and in that alchemical way almost use the ener- be able to use and channel the energy. And so, um, yeah, so uh, starting with grounding I think is very, is very important um, so and going I, on from I, there. I, I think we have a lot. Uh, I, I'd like to dive deeper in the, in the next uh, section and particularly in terms of the fact that some people would have no idea what we're talking about there. And uh, I'm saying that because I think before I um, did some of the types of work you're talking about, I could not make connection with uh, myself, I guess, um, you know, my, my thoughts, feelings, um, inner experiences. So let's come back to that after the break. And listeners, you can find links to my, my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc. Sign up for my email list. And to find Karen Post and Deborah Pardis in their book, go to www.climbingoutfromunder.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with the authors of Climbing Out From Under, A Handbook for Heartbreak, Deborah Pardis and Karen Post. And before the break, we were talking about your acronym, GLITTER, and uh, you were saying it's very, the most elemental aspect is getting grounded, Um, and you said that that happens by making connection with your senses, and so uh, I wondered if you could sort of demonstrate how a person who's not used to c- connecting with their senses that um, consciously might do that. Um, would they just ask, what am I hearing? What am I seeing? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or is it more complicated than that? <laughs> well, uh, I think we, we listen uh, to music all the time, uh, whether we're in the car or out in the world, uh, or at home, and I, I think that of all the senses, um, when we think about grounding into music, you could just stop and listen, and, it, and maybe there's no music, maybe there's birds, maybe there's a car running, maybe there's, uh, if you just start to think about the environment from a sonic point of view, it, it stops you from doing other things. Um, and, and, and Karen, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like part of getting in touch with your senses is is sort of getting rid of the other things that are not grounding you, but senses will bring you back into your center. Is that right? Uh, I think that um, um, this idea, Cheryl, also that you talked about, that, that we don't really often know just how to connect with ourselves or what's going on in our internal worlds or, uh, is very important and that, uh, the idea of grounding, there's different ways to ground, and, and one is uh, through the senses, and which you brought up and Deborah gave that example of, and there are other ways as well, which, uh, for example, paying attention, bringing a kind of bare awareness to your breath. So all of these things, you know, the five senses, paying attention to your breath, these are all things that have to do with the body, 
And that, in a sense, is what we, is grounding because emotions, when we're talking about grief and heartbreak, emotions, we tend to, in the old Cartesian split way, we tend to think, oh, emotions, like those are, those are, those are in my mind. Um, but mm. it, we're really, like, we are body minds or mind bodies together, all as, as one unit. And so, and emotions, the word emotion comes from energy and motion, energy moving through the body. So the kind of, uh, in the way Thich Nhat Hanh has said that your body is your first home, um, to connect with your body and become aware of the sensations in your body, whether that be through your sensory uh, organs, your ears, your eyes, your sense of smell and touch, um, to focus in on those or your actual breathing, which is so fundamental, um, you then, in a way, in a very profound way, connect with yourself. You begin to focus in on the basic, most basic aspects of your awareness. And once you can start to do that, you're building a mental muscle in a way to be able to connect with yourself. Uh, And once you can do that, then the more advanced skills can, uh, they have fertile ground to uh, develop on. Uh, You can begin to recognize and understand and uh, because you've learned how to ground first and uh, the senses help you do that, like Deborah was saying about music or just focusing in on what you're hearing or what you're feeling or you can feel the feeling of your back against the chair. It takes you out of a flighty kind of I'm everywhere and I'm feeling so much intensely and I'm all over the place. It takes you uh, kind of to a fundamental experience. And maybe, you know, I have the experience often of um, uh, a client or even a friend saying, God, I've tried, I've tried meditation, but it doesn't work. And I'll say, oh, what what happens when you try it? And they'll say, my mind is so loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'll say, mm-hmm. well, then it worked because you noticed your mind in a way mm-hmm. that you don't mm-hmm. the rest of the time. But I think that mm-hmm. is a struggle for people. Uh, they're, tr- they're trying to get rid of the mind in mm-hmm. order to connect to the body. And, and it doesn't really... Uh, often doesn't work. You have to just do them synonymously, maybe, or side by side. Well, also, uh, one of the things that's, that I think is so interesting about this work uh, around the mind is we dedicate a lot in terms of our tools to helping people recognize the voices in their head. So what is the mind? The mind is a, is a, is a lot of things, but one of, it, one, one of the ways it manifests in terms of our concept of it is voices and thoughts. And some of those voices are, are really... Uh, speaking from a place that is not, I have to use the word true, which is a strange word, but it's speaking falsehoods about who you are. And we take a lot of time in the book to, to discuss what we call the dragon and the flower, the, 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 the dragon being the, these violent words that come towards us and make us believe things that aren't true, um, and then having to figure out how to control those voices and understand them. Because in the book, we talk a lot about how heartbreak is repercussive, how it continues to to show itself. And a lot of that has to do with heartbreak that's way earlier than the one you're experiencing now. So all this has to do with understanding how your mind works and how your mind sort of shows up in these, in these traumatic times and is not the friend that you need. So you have to figure out how to, how to navigate that whole uh, 
it's, it's when they say that my mind is noisy, it's noisy because it's, 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 it's giving you messages, it's telling you things. And the next step is how do you receive those messages and how do you process them? What do you make of, what meaning do you make of them, I suppose? Right. Yeah? Right. So in a way, we're talking about, you know, the messiness of feelings, which I guess uh, we could call them kind of bunches of sensations altogether. Um, could one of you read the... Um, the section of your book about dealing with feelings, it seems right in line with what we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Deborah, I'll let you read that one. Okay. Um, life feels like a tangled mess when your emotions are flying around, out of control, in your face, all up in your hair, making you feel even worse than you look. We've all been there in that no speed limit zone where your heartbreak is tearing you apart and you're feeling so emotional, you think you're going to explode. In order to work with these intense emotions around heartbreak, we have to cultivate emotional intelligence. You probably have more of it than you think, but given our culture's stigma and shame-inducing attitudes about emotions, we can benefit from learning even more. That means growing in our understanding of how emotions actually operate. To strengthen your mental muscle in order to tolerate the intensity of heartbreak, it's important to work to overcome some obstacles that get in the way of that. First, we're going to detangle some of the knots and then work directly with the more elemental or more primitive, uh, primitive emotions. I like that way of putting it, strengthening your mental muscle. Um, and I think, we, I think we're talking, too, about doing that by... Um, making our um, bodies, the territory of our bodies, safer mm-hmm. in some way. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that, Definitely. That those those two kind of kind of go together. Otherwise, we're just running around in our heads much more than mm-hmm. maybe we want to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, you know, I also, as I'm the, reading this, I also want to want to say something about the. You know, uh, I, I was listening to some of your, some of your other uh, radio shows, and it's, it's just such a robust conversation that you've entered into these past two years. I mean, it's 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 so comprehensive, and it's so great that we're in this little sliver of conversation. And I I think that part of uh, the idea of feelings, and and you know, we talk about the the, the world wanting us to get over things fast. Um, I mm. feel like that's kind of a, a huge topic. Um, around the idea of why we did a handbook as opposed to a novel or, a big, I mean, a big, fat resource book. Because the idea of, of handbooks, you tend to refer to them over and over again, and they become something that, in, it, in, in effect, says it's okay to have this in your life forever. You can have this handbook to keep you going so that your emotional intelligence continues to grow because you're continuing to check in with yourself, which is why the tone of the book as a handbook is not severe. It's not, um, it's not academic. We wanted to make this like a friend that you had in your life so that you can continue in these conversations because I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are, are, in it, are in this for the long haul. They're in this conversation. It's not like they're going to stop on January 1st because they're done. Yes. I mean, I think, yeah. it's, I think it's a real lifestyle issue. It's a real, it's a real acute awareness that, that this is part of life. Well, the thing I've noticed doing this for two years now is uh, um, that an experience that's familiar to me that at first when you're kind of 
hit across the head with something. It's just all jumbled. But then eventually, mm-hmm. if you if you just continue to follow yourself in a way, uh, things emerge that you couldn't have anticipated or planned. There, uh, you know, even the show is a great example of that. I never could have mm-hmm. anticipated doing something mm-hmm. like this. Maybe the book is a little that way for you. So. I I like what you're saying that there's some way you're actually developing capacity for ongoing um, uh, interaction with yourself mm-hmm. as yeah. as things go forward. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, a great point you made, Deborah, and a, a great way you're uh, framing that, Charles. So. Yeah, well, I think, you know, we make, we make an assumption we lay people because the both of you are people who see clients and on a daily basis you're engaged in this emotional landscape, if you will. Like you guys are talking heart and soul and, and transitions and possibilities and pain and suffering and your, your vocabulary is pretty advanced. Um, so it's interesting to have someone like myself who's more into the, more, more into the communications world, the literacy world, to sort of, um, swim in this, in this big ocean of, of, of language because it's not our everyday conversation. Um, and it's really a, a nice that there's a mix here because, as, as there should be, you know, I think some people reserve a sure. hour that they pay their therapists, but a lot of people <laughs> can't afford therapy and they need, they need ongoing conversation. And maybe their family and friends aren't at the place where they can, you know, indulge in, in, in those kinds of difficult conversations. I think that's a bigger conversation is actually how do we keep the, this language in, in society and not put it away and, and uh, you know, that stays, you know, behind closed doors in the tissue box. So let's come back to that after the break. And listeners, you can find links to my, my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, etc. Sign up for my email list. And to find Karen Post and Deborah Pardis in their book, go to www.climbingoutfromunder.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here talking with uh, the authors of Climbing Out from Under, Deborah Pardis and Karen Post, and we're we're really talking about Deborah. You were saying that um, you know us professionals have a little different language, um, a little more complicated, maybe sometimes, and that uh, we're we're really talking uh, both of you and I about uh, how to make these ideas accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. I mean, that, that mm-hmm. was the exciting part of this project where, you know, a lot of times um, uh, professionals like Dr. Post have, have a body of work that they want to get out in, in, in a book, and they kind of thrust this big stack of papers to a writer, and they say, hey, you know, make this, make this sound good. But that was not our relationship at all. It was really interpreting, you know, moment by moment what was going to be the best way to express an idea to an audience that, that might be really, uh, first of all, in, in undergoing a lot of issues around their own um, grief, but also they don't want to be measured by whether or not they're good at reading something or can they get, can they get the concept, let alone will the concept help them feel better. Um, so we had a really good check and balance system. Um, and I think that as a, as a, in the days of the Internet, you know, documents are ever-growing and ever-changing. This book is a is a catalyst for a bigger conversation like we're having. So our online community, we want to build that conversation. Uh, we want to do workshops um, through community libraries where people are talking about emotional literacy as a concept um, so that families can grieve together and friends can grieve together and not just make it an isolated experience. Well, uh, one thing I do appreciate about the Internet um, in terms of my show and many other things, is that when people are not uh, feeling safe to connect with friends or talk about it with mm-hmm. with people face to face, they have an outlet for 
engaging with these ideas without um, feeling too vulnerable at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a, could you yeah. talk a little more about your online community? I just first want to say that um, what what you're saying is uh, uh, such a good way of putting it. It's it's like a scaffolding. Um, so our hope for the book and the website is um, like a transitional object, like a stuffed animal in a sense. So and and a scaffolding to help when a person can't reach out to others and. Um, um, I hadn't really thought about it the way you just put it in terms of uh, your online community and that it really uh, is a transitional space in a way and a way for people to feel safe when they're not feeling safe because their emotions are so overpowering and from their earliest experiences as well and um, ways that they're raised and our culture teaches us to deal with or not deal with vulnerability. Um, it's hard for people to connect or reach out when they're feeling vulnerable and that the Internet can, can be a first step and something that feels safer. So I think that's a very important idea. And mm. then, of course, there's uh, actually finding a way to reach out to others, which you talk about quite a bit. Um, I, I'm hoping w- uh, that, uh, Karen, you could read the pillow list section. Now, sure. um, but before you do, when I was yeah. reading this, I was thinking about people who experience themselves. I work in the cancer community, and and uh, that's a real uh, hit over the head for people in terms of how they relate. And many people will say, God, I don't have any friends that will come through for me because they're actually not used to, either because they are indeed isolated, but more often because they're not used to being the one that needs help and they don't really know how to identify uh, Mm -hmm. who might be helpful. Mm -hmm. So I thought Mm -hmm. this section was very important in that that sense. Mm -hmm. Could you Mm -hmm. share that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, you hit on something very important that many people are maybe used to being the helper and not someone who asks for help and that that really is an adaptation that a lot of people make. Um, that's a way in which they feel they can maintain attachments, that that's the only way they, that, that connections will last if, if they don't ask for help. Mm. And um, so it really is person really then is really bumping up against very some old adaptations and uh, old uh, internal working models, so to speak, ways of being, old ways of being that were laid down early on. So it is a challenge, and that's why it is important to have some tools to help yourself and help uh, help people break out of that that shell of isolation or feeling that someone won't be there and how do you take that risk so um, or, or test out uh, challenge the old hypotheses where you feel that no one will be there for you so I'll read from uh, the pillow list uh, section and um, so when creating your pillow list it's never about quantity there is one person who has the capacity to really Just listen to you, to whom you can make a call when your head is heavy on your pillow, and it's been that way for more hours than you're used to. 
write that person's name down. It could be a relative, a friend, a teacher, a counselor, or a 12-step meeting acquaintance. People on your pillow list are people who probably have had heartbreak themselves. Though heartbreak has hit practically everyone on this planet, maybe you feel that these people, chosen people, are more in touch and aware of their pain, these people that you might turn to. They are sensitive to what you might be experiencing. The pillow list is really important because it's like a ballast in heavy winds. Just looking at it with the one or two or three names written on it can bring you from a state of desperate isolation to a more stable and connected place. It's not about calling each of these people every time you grab hold of the paper. It's more about knowing that they are in the world, loving you for who you are, accepting you for who you are and what you mean to them. It's easy for the dragon to speak inside you and cause you to forget your network and those individuals who are the stakeholders in your well-being. The pillow list is meant to stay by your side or in your pocket. It's a touchstone to remind you that you matter and are part of other people's pillow lists, too. I, I love that section, and I was aware of people that I've worked with who, um, you know, put their toe in the water and actually do get uh, negative back. They're, they're mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and how difficult that is and how hard it is to, um, to see yeah. that as kind of a, a litmus test that, in a way, mm-hmm. those are not the right people for you. Mm-hmm. But it can be very, very painful. This mm-hmm. happens just uh, very commonly when people are diagnosed with cancer. They th- mm-hmm. they'll say, "Some people I wasn't even close to are now that right there for me, and other people I was sure would come through for me are just completely absent, or you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, aren't mm-hmm. able to be there at all." Do you uh, do you find that too? Yes, uh, absolutely. That's so important, and just because we reach out doesn't mean that someone will be there or that they're capable of being there, and that is very painful. And I think your framework for helping people work with that and understand it is good and that that's knowledge and information. It's painful, knowledge and information, but that that person, for whatever reason, can't be. Maybe they're afraid of your pain and suffering. Um, maybe they're, they don't have a way. It's too much for them. And that uh, it's important, though, because that can feel like rejection and feel like another heartbreak in, in, in a sense. And um, that's why we, we talk about doing a lot of the inner work to kind of tease apart the current pain from new pains so, so that somebody not being able to respond to you and attune to you and be there for you, uh, that can feel like evidence. Uh, to feed into this old feeling of no one's going to be there for me or my pain is too messy or I'm too much and my emotions are too much for people. And so there there could be, well, there's the proof. I, I reached out, I put my toe in the water, and they responded, which is obviously too much for them. And so rather than working with people to help them understand, rather than this feeding into evidence as evidence, the evidence seeker part of us um, I call it, uh, it needs to be seen for what it is, which is uh, simply that a person, that particular person can't be there. And also this discussion leads to another important aspect, which is maybe, uh, maybe in a given moment there's someone who can't be there for you or you can't find that person. And it is therefore really important in all of this, um, the work with grief and your own pain is 
one very positive uh, outgrowth of it can be the development of increased compassion, and that's compassion for other people suffering, but born out of a compassion for your, developing a compassionate presence with inside of yourself to be compassionate with yourself, with your own pain. So I think that's something, that another kind of capacity or muscle that can grow. Uh, and one of the things that is transformative about grief or that can be transformative. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? So, so you know, it's here's... Because, it, yeah. I'm sorry, I was missing a go, tag on go, to that. Go that right ahead. W- when we were talking about the transformation of, of being more compassionate to others because of this experience, at the very end of the book, we, we tag on this idea of turning towards the world as opposed to yourself, where you're able to come through this with a, a deeper sense of compassion and understanding of what it feels like so that when you go out into the world, you can, you, can, you know, when you give, you get, you get back, obviously. But it's that cycle that, that I think is really uh, amazing. So that uh, what you're saying is that as as you develop more capacity to be with your own experience, more compassion for yourself, perhaps less um, less intense shame reactions to things or less intense mm-hmm. self criticism, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that naturally grows into more compassion for other people as well. Mm-hmm. Is yeah, that what I just heard? Much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think very it's, much. Uh, so. I, I mean, I mean, we all probably know that from just. I mean, <laughs> basic example is when you've you've broken your ankle. You know what that feels like. The next person you see with a broken ankle, you're like, "Look, I get that. I was mm-hmm. there. I knew exactly how hard it was to get into my car. I, I feel. I feel your pain." Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's so true. And unlike with a broken ankle, what you're bringing up, Cheryl, is there's so much shame around emotions. And so um, what we try to impart in the book is a way to, um, and this is a, something a woman named Miriam Greenspan, I don't know if you know her mm-hmm. work, but um, she uses the term befriending your emotions. And um, so, so, yeah, so through doing that, um, that can begin to, it's an antidote to shame. And just like Deborah was saying, with a broken ankle, you know what it, you do know what it feels like, and you don't feel shame that your you, your ankle hurts, or less likely to feel shame. That you're, <laughs> yeah, you have, to, you have to go a little farther. To, to say that make, again. You know, I shouldn't have been walking down that street, or I yeah. should. You know, you, you're right. You're absolutely right, people. Do it, but people, it takes we a do little... we do numbers on ourselves, no matter what, for feeling pain and vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. Self-blame, I do think there's a, there's a rhythm. There's a rhythm to this. To the, I'm just thinking out loud here around, um, you know, when you're talking about poking your head out the door to see who's there. And, and we have a section called looking through the screen door, and it's about the safety of a screen door is different than a door that's swinging wide open. It's the stages of this process that I think are, are worth people's consideration for their own safety so that they do things in, in a sort of in a sort of rhythm so that they don't jump ahead too far and then get slammed back down. So as much as this, this handbook can be a resource for time and time again, I think the first um, understanding of how it might work for you is to, is to go through it um, as it's written so that you can see the stages of coming out, not just from shame, but also coming out into the world and setting your own rules about what you can and cannot do, what's What's possible? Are you ready to go to dinner? Are you ready to go to a movie? Are you ready to ask for help? Are you ready to give help? 
you know, these are all things uh, that, that take, you have to consider where you are and know yourself. So, that you have to, so in order to know yourself, you have to have that emotional intelligence in place, that, that awareness. And it seems to me that then you're, you're really talking about something that's very uh, contrary to the way uh, most of us have been wired f- in terms of grief and heartbreak, which is get through it fast. Mm-hmm. And so if it's not going fast, uh, that, that's a huge, uh, invitation for shame in people. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not getting through it well enough, fast enough, um, strongly enough, you know. Uh, yes. so in a sense, you're saying don't be in a rush. Absolutely, yeah. that it has a flow and an energy and a timeline all of its own. And all we can really do is, um, as Deborah said, try to cultivate some emotional intelligence and skills, efficacy around uh, dealing with feeling states, which is something most of us didn't grow up knowing how to do. Mm. So, therefore, learning to work with the energy of grief and sadness and all of that and the painful emotions that go along with loss Learning to work with them, coming up beside yourself, developing a compassionate inner presence, developing these tools first to know what you're feeling so you could bear it, and and then let the then the energy of it will um, so you're not resisting it anymore, you're not pushing it away because you're ashamed uh, or you feel like you're being judged, you're judging yourself or others maybe judging you and. Uh, you're right, Cheryl. You know there is a societal feeling of, oh, you know, you you lost a parent. That was, you know, nine months ago. You know, it's time to move on. Or, well, it's often and- that was three weeks ago. It's time to move mm. on. <laughs> that's what I. <laughs> yeah. That's what I notice. <laughs> that is absolutely. It's yeah. We, we, we're, we're so uh, opposed to, you know, we, we can't imagine how we'll bear losing someone important. And then uh, once, once we do, everyone's telling us, you know, you should be over it already <laughs> before you right. even felt it. Yes. So um, yes. I, yes. You know, I think uh, the way in which grief teaches, from my view, is just we can't get out of it. You can't, you know, it's, it's pretty compelling uh, mm-hmm. emotional state. Um, so yes. often, and people have to pay a little more attention to themselves. Yes. Well, yeah. I always, I have to say that it's like yes. when you go up to a ski slope and you're faced with a black diamond or a green or a blue. You know, you you can't go down a slope that you're not ready for. You're going to get into trouble. So it's it's that's a physical example. But I think that we have to treat our our, our grief and our processing it with with that kind of an urgency because it's you know it's, it's our one life and we have to take care of how we, we, we move through it. And I just want to say that uh, in contrast to what we're talking about, kind of this careful attention to everything within, I did enjoy that you had a section on um, escapism. That, <laughs> <laughs> that sometimes you just have to play uh, solitaire or <laughs> sometimes okay. you just mm-hmm. need a break, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That was a fun <laughs> list. That was a very fun list to create, too. Yeah. Um, just just in case we leave the impression that this is all hard work, you know, sometimes yes. you have to be gentle and, you know, 
Go to the movies. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes that's that's the the safest thing to do. Um, you know, distraction and escapism they do they do play an important role. You know, it's um, y- you need a break, like you said, and um, so all things people in, shouldn't all, feel all ashamed of that either. It's not just yeah. that you have to be always mindful and um, you know. Um, doing some some work to bear the feelings, sometimes that's how you're going to bear them is by giving yourself a break. That's a nice and place to that end you can for the that. day. <laughs> Thanks so much for being with me today, Karen and Deborah. Oh, oh, oh great. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to, to talk with you. Absolutely. Listeners, you can find both Karen Post and Deborah Pardis at www.climbingoutfromunder.com. Next week, my guest is Bart Windrum. His book, Notes from the Waiting Room, grew out of his experiences with managing the ends of his parents' lives a year apart and both in the hospital. He's now an advocate for more informed decisions and better understanding of the end of life and the different ways that people um, end their lives Uh, get to the end of their lives and what we may face as advocates for our loved ones. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.